they've had their you first, me first, you first, you first, me first, back and forth. And now the Pilgrim and Brunetta Lartini are actually ready to start into a real conversation. They've established their manner code between them. They've established their politeness. And they've established their ability to use language rhetoric to get what they want. Something out of each other. Brunetto wants something from our pilgrim. Our pilgrim wants something from his teacher, or at least who he wants us to think was his teacher. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. We say that, don't I? It is the common refrain, and yet here we are. Somehow, in the middle of Canto 15, I didn't ever think when I started this podcast in September of 2020 that I would actually still be doing this in August of 2021. I don't know what I thought. That somehow was just going to end. I don't know. Maybe it was the pandemic. But time didn't mean anything to me back then. And now here we are, almost a year later. We're at Canto 15, nearing the middle of Inferno. We're at lines 46 through 78. Without anything else to say, let's do the passage. Brunetto set off like this. What fate or destiny leads you down here before your final hour? And who is this one showing you the path? There up above, in the bright life, I replied, I lost myself in a valley before my years on earth had reached their fullness. Only yesterday morning, I gave my life the cold shoulder. He appeared just as I was falling back into that valley, and now takes me along this track toward home. And he to me, if you follow your star, you cannot fail to get into a glorious port. If I learned anything for sure in that beautiful life, and if I hadn't gotten to the time of death so soon, seeing that the heavens offer you such beneficence, I would have comforted you in your work. But that ungrateful people, malign ones really, who came down from Fiesole in the olden times and still smell like the mountains and the rocks, will become your enemies because of all the good you've done. Not without reason, because the bitter crab apples stop the sweet figs from coming to fruit. The old tales of the world call them blind. A people given over to greed, envy, and pride. Make sure you clean yourself up from their customs. Your fate holds such honor for you that one party and then the other will want to eat you alive. But let the green grass stay a long way away from the goat. Let these fierce and beasts render each other into chaff. And if anything still grows on their shit heap, don't let them touch the cultivated plant in which still lives the holy semen of those Romans who stuck around when the place became a breeding ground of all that malice. We're going to stop right there right in the middle of Brunetto's discussion with our pilgrim about the past and the future. This passage has two parts to it. It has a bit about our pilgrim first, and then it has Brunetto's strange and provocative prophecy. I want to take both of these parts, and then I want to say a final thing about Brunetto Latini, even though we are not done at all 
with this canto. We've got two more episodes after this on this canto. So let's get started. Brunetto set off like this. The passage begins, it actually starts, he set off like this, but I put Brunetto there so you'd know who we were talking about. He set off like this, and I think that's very important, and I want to just pause on that. The Comincio, the starting. Comincio that he starts with, he begins, he starts like this. I think it's important to know that that word falls there, he commences. This, to me, indicates we're getting toward the heart of the matter. They've had their polite back and forths. Oh, let me sit with you. No, you can't. Let me walk with you. I go, you go, my head down, your head up. (laughs) The whole thing that they did with each other in the last bit, no, you first, no, you, no, you. And now it strikes me that we're being signaled that we're coming to the meat of the matter. So, Brunetto has two questions. What fate or destiny leads you down here before your final hour? Notice that Brunetto has no problem knowing that the pilgrim is alive. Other people will seem shocked by this, and other people above us have already seemed shocked by this, but Brunetto seems (laughs) to take it all in stride. So you're here. How'd you get here before your final hour? How'd you get here before you died? And who is this one showing you the path? Oh, let's stop right there. That's the other reference to Virgil. If you remember in the last episode of this podcast, in the last passage, the pilgrim made a reference to the one who is leading me or who I am following, this kind of reference back to Virgil back there. And now this question, who is this one showing you the path? You'll notice in the entire passage that I just read, that question is never answered. There's several explanations for this. Generally, the explanation is that Brunetto Latini himself knew very little, if anything, of Virgil's writing. And so he doesn't really recognize Virgil standing there. It's the same with Farinata. Remember, Virgil hangs way back off the side in the discussion in Canto Tim with Farinata. So again, another way that these incidents are paralleled, except in this case, it's brought forward to our attention. Who is this one showing you the path? It can be that in Brunetto Latini's own writing, there is very little reference to Virgil, and that is true. But it also has something to do with poetic and fatherly rivalry. That is, the literary father, or at least one literary father, doesn't recognize the other one. They don't instantly know each other. It's a very strange little bit. And the pilgrim has an answer. There up above in the bright life, I replied, I lost myself in a valley before my years on earth had reached their fullness. This is a reference clearly to the opening lines of a comedy, Da mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi retrovai per un selvo oscuro, che la dritta via era smarita. This is that bit, I lost myself in a dark wood, midway in the journey of our life. But there's a couple things I want to say about this, and I think this is really important to note. One, Back in the beginning of the poem, Canto 1, it's mi retrovai, I found myself in a dark wood. Here, the reflexive verb is different. It's mi smari, I lost myself. There's been a redefinition. And in fact, this is a little bit clearer about what's going on. It's one thing to say, I found myself in a dark wood. It's kind of curious. Well, how'd you get there? And why are you there? Here, there's a causality. I lost myself in a valley before my years on earth had reached their fullness. This is also a direct reference to the Tesseretto, Latini's own text. Brunetto writes, as I told you in the first episode of this podcast, these lines about deviating from the 
path into a dark wood once he finds out that the Battle of Monteperti has been lost for his side. And this begins the giant narrative framework of the Tesseretto. In other words, these three lines, there up above it in the bright life, I lost myself in a valley before my years on earth had reached their fullness, is a gloss on Latini's own text. This is a quote from Brunetto, torqued a bit, changed a bit, but it is very close to that moment in which Brunetto finds himself lost from the path in a dark wood because of the Battle of Monteperti. And I think it's important to notice the actionality here. I lost myself. Not I found myself in that dark wood, but I lost myself. They were clarifying what's going on back there by taking more from Brunetto's own poem. You notice what's happening here. There is a quoting going on. There is one poem containing another. Here, the comedy containing the Tesseretto. There are ways in which there are parallels going on, as I've already called it a gloss. Here's another way to look at it. It's a redundancy. It's a repetition, an illusion, a redundancy. How did this this canto start off? With Two similes, Flemings and Paduans, then two more similes, Men at Night, Taylor, Old Taylor with an Eye of a Needle. Those similes are redundant. They're saying the same thing twice in the same way that quoting other texts is a redundancy, in the same way that, here we go, get ready, homosexuality is a redundancy. That is, two men. It is a repetition, a redundancy that is going on. And there is a way in which redundancy becomes fundamental to this text itself. That is, writing over what has been written, rewriting what has been written, re-saying what has been said by saying it again— They did that a little bit in their rhetorical back and forths in the last episode. That redundancy is extraordinarily important to what happens inside this because it's part of how you deal with your literary forebearers by quoting, alluding, glossing, using their language, using their words, twisting their words, recasting them, re-putting them in a place. And yet, of course, by putting them here, they form a mirror, like looking back and forth, the comedy looking at the Tesseretto, like two men looking at each other. The pilgrim goes on. Only yesterday morning, I gave my life the cold shoulder. He appeared, there's old Virgil, just as I was falling back into that valley, and now takes me along this track toward home. The word used there is ka, C-A. It is an incredibly sweet dialectical word. It's We don't really have a word for home like this in English. Um, I tried to find a word in translating. I just couldn't find anything that works. It's more like mommy for mother. It's kind of an infant word, ka. And it has this very familiar tonality to it. Dante has actually criticized both Brunetto and others in others of his works for using diction that is this low. And that he comes back around here talking to Brunetto and uses a very babyish word, a very close, intimate word, ka, for home. As Robert Hollander points out, it's a 
powerful moment in the text. It is an admission of what the vulgar language, the vernacular, the common speech can do. It can throw this emotional import into the text. This word comes up also in Dante's Convivio, the banquet, in which he's discussing how a pilgrim loses his way and tries to find his way home. Interesting there that they're talking about in the Convivio that Dante's talking about Boethius and that here we're going to get into a discussion of fortune. So there may be resonances with the Convivio too. If you want to look that up, you can look it up in the Convivio in Book 4, Chapter 12, about line 15 and following. It's a little deeper and more in the weeds than we usually get in the podcast. But if you're interested in that, check it out. So the pilgrim uses this word ka and this causes Brunetto to say the most amazing lines. Here they are. If you follow your star... You cannot fail to get into a glorious port if I learned anything for sure in that beautiful life. And if I hadn't gotten to the time of death so soon, Brunetto goes on, seeing that the heavens, doesn't use the word paradiso, he means heaven, like up above your head, like where the sun and stars are. Seeing that the heavens offer you such beneficence, I would have comforted you in your work. Brunetto says, follow your star, follow your horoscope, is what he's saying. Follow your destiny as written in the natural world. Follow that, and you cannot fail to get into a glorious port. This is a strange moment in such a religious poem that is heading toward Ka, home as paradise, where God is. And yet here we have this kind of naturalistic, humanistic well, medieval humanistic, it involves a horoscope, medieval humanistic search for destiny. Follow your star. You cannot fail to get into a glorious port. Dante is headed toward a glorious port. (laughs) It's at Mount Purgatory. But that's not what the humanist Brunetto believes. He believes in some kind of mm, star-shaped destiny that you can get into if you just follow it in the beautiful life. If I learned anything, he says... I can see that the heavens offer you such beneficence, and I wish that I had comforted you in your work. Let's say two things about that. One, he's probably talking about Dante's politics. Dante wasn't much of a literary figure when Brunetto died in 1294, but the poet is playing fast and loose here, so he could be saying something about work opera in terms of the poetics. After all, we don't have to hold the poet to an exact chronology here. Brunetto dies in 1294. Dante's a political figure, but not much of a writer. Most people say, oh, this has got to be, I could have comforted you in your politics, in your political position in Florentine, especially because he's about what he's about to prophesy about exile. But be that as it may, it still could have to do with literary work, even though that would be out of time sequence because the poet is already playing fast and loose with time sequences. So that's their first bit. Brunetto wants to know what's going on. Dante offers a confession. I lost myself. Mi smarri. I lost myself in a valley. He explains that this person is leading him ka home, but he doesn't say to God. He says ka. Dante, the pilgrim, is still couching it in very secular terms. And then Brunetto launches into this follow your star speech. We should pause right here before we turn to the second bit of this passage. 
Why should we accept what Brunetto says here? Most people, because of what comes next, accept Brunetto at face value. Follow your star. Follow yourself into a glorious port. Keep writing this poem. Do all the things you're doing, and you're going to become the great writer that you are destined to be. Most people kind of take this as this kind of veiled comment on that. Maybe, but should we take Brunetto at his word? Should we take Francesca at her word? Should we take Ferranata at his word? Would we use Francesca as a study in what Dante means about love? Well, why are we taking Brunetto then as a sure guide? It's also curious because he's not speaking religiously. He's not speaking about God. Now, admittedly, neither is our pilgrim. Lost myself, going home, not going to God, but going home. Neither of them is speaking very religiously right here. They're speaking very secularly. And in fact, what happens next is Brunetto offers a secular prophecy. He goes on, that ungrateful people, malign ones really, who came down from Fiesole in the olden times. And you should know he uses a little Latin here. So I used olden times to kind of give it an old flair to the text. And they still smell like the mountains and the rocks. They will become your enemies because of all the good you've done. What Brunetto is launching into is this notion that the Florentines have been invaded by, uh, well, by rubes, as it were, the Fiesolans, from up in the hills. And this Florence, which was settled by these glorious Romans, has been invaded by these rubes from up in the hills. And they've created these kind of half-breeds who just don't do right in any way. They still smell like the mountains and the rocks. They'll become your enemies because of all the good you've done and not without reason. Because the bitter crab apples stop the sweet frigs from coming to fruit. Brunetto is soaring here to rhetorical heights. He's using words like bitter crab apples and sweet figs. This gloriously poetic language and yet at the same time as we're going to see he also uses a low level vocabulary i want to talk about this in a minute because it's so fascinating so the fusillons are these bitter crab apples and you know they just they choke everything out and you don't get any sweet figs when you plant too many bitter crab apple trees and the old tales of the world call them blind Brunetto says, a people given over to greed, envy, and pride, make sure you clean yourself up from their customs. Don't let any of that nasty half-breedness come on you. Your fate holds such honor for you that one party and then the other will want to eat you alive. Is he talking about Gelfs and Ghibellines? Is he talking about white and blacks? Much debated in the commentary. Nonetheless, the point seems to be that Dante is going to steer a course such that every side is going to want to have at him. And notice... What he says, let the green grass stay a long way away from the goat. Talk about rhetorical excess. He has launched himself up into this aphorism. Let the green grass stay a long way from the goat to indicate that Dante should stay pure, that the poetry should stay pure, that his work should stay pure and not be chewed down by these nasty Fiesolan goats. And then Latini says, let the Fiesolan beasts render each other into chaff. In, in other words, let them chew each other up and digest each other. And if anything still grows on their shit heap, don't let them touch the cultivated plant. 
Notice that low language. And it's just that way in the medieval Florentine. It is that crude and that crass. So we want to talk about that. But let's just finish it off. In which still lives, that is, you know, that the, they've turned this whole place into a sewer. But it's somewhere in there still lives the holy semen of those Romans who stuck around when the place became the breeding ground of all that malice. So the notion here is that these Romans settled Florence. They got invaded by these Fiesolans who brought down all their savage, deplorable to use a modern word, deplorable, rude ways. They then kind of made a mess out of the place, but still stuck around there are true Romans. And the hint in the passage is that Dante himself is part of these true Romans. And he ends on the word malice, malizia. This is important because remember way back in Canto 11, Virgil laid out the lower bits of hell and there was the whole question of malice and insane brutishness. Well, we're amongst the violent and this word malizia, malice, comes up again. It seems important to note where we are in the map of hell and Brunetto helps us understand we're still in the violent, the sins of malice, even though he himself is using very loaded words. In fact, so loaded, we have to ask this question. Is Brunetto a racist pig? I mean, after all, he comes across as kind of boorish, snobby, looking down at these, you know, lowlifes who've taken over Florence. And my gosh, they've contaminated the Holy Roman, well, semen. I mean, that's the word he uses. Is he this kind of boorish, racist pig? Or um, how do I say this? Are these the poet's thoughts? Is this what Dante, the poet, is thinking is happening in Florence? That the place has been run over by, again, to use the modern word, the deplorables? And that it's ruined the pure Roman blood that some people, like me, still exhibit? I mean, we again, let me go back. We would not trust Francesca on love. So should we trust Brunetto on politics? Is he right here? Is this really what happens? Is it really the case that somehow the pure Roman blood has been run over? I'm not sure. And I always pause here because almost all commentators accept Brunetto's uh, assessment of things here at face value. That is that you are this gorgeous plant, Dante, growing on this dung heap that the Fiesolans have created in Florence. I'm not so sure we should take Brunetto at face value here. But here is something else I am sure of. Brunetto is rising, as I've said, to his rhetorical heights. Let the green grass stay a long way from the goat. The bitter crab apples stop the sweet figs from coming to fruit. I mean, my gosh, the high-level, polite, beautifully contained and mannered rhetoric is going on alongside low-level vocabulary. Car for home, shit heap, semen, very low coarse vocabulary. And you realize that is Dante's hope. Dante's hope is that he's going to write a rhetorically intense and beautifully constructed poem using low-level common vocabulary. And if we can take Brunetto at anything, 
we can take him at this task as right. That is, this gorgeous rhetorical flourish with the most common coarse language. And it all goes back even to the poet himself who used the word coffer home. So, what do we have here? We have a kind of new poetics being exhibited by Brunetto as he tries to lay out the political problems in Florence, a kind of gorgeously mannered rhetoric full of poetic import using the crassest, most common vulgar vernacular words. Nothing could be closer to modernist 20th and 21st century poetry, to be honest. Nothing could be closer to the kind of poetry that is featured on my poetry podcast, Lyric Life. This is the beginning of this notion that you can cast highfalutin concepts into just common language. You and I may accept that as the truth. We're watching Brunetto do it. This is what Dante hoped that Brunetto did in his own works. I'm not sure this is what Brunetto pulled off. His own works actually aren't that compelling. <laughs> they're not, they're, they're no Dantean comedy. And yet I think this is what the poet is hoping from Brunetto. You realize that Brunetto is shot through this. I, I It's too much to say, and the, this podcast episode has gone too, on too long already, but so many of the lines here are taken from the Tresor, from the Tesseretto, from Brunetto's work. In fact, Brunetto has been here all along. Remember at the end of Canto 13 with the suicides, remember that second Florentine suicide, the guy who said, I turned my house into my gibbet, or, right, and I hung himself in his house? And remember, he's got that whole story about the Romans and Mars and the figure of Mars in Florence, always at war, but at least a piece of the statue of Mars is left. Remember that from the end of Canto 13? That's Brunetto. That comes right out of Brunetto's own writing. He's been here since the end of Canto 13. He is central to Inferno. There is something about him. This is almost the midpoint, not quite. But there is something here in Canto 15 that is incredibly important to understand in the same way that there will be something incredibly important to understand in Canto 15 of Paradiso. There's something here that's controlling the text. And, of course, it comes from Brunetto Latino, as Dante calls him in the text. Latino, the Roman, the Italian. And here he is lauding the old Roman seed. Let's say one more thing before we get rid of this episode. The Inferno is all about unlearning what you already know. Or relearning how to recast what you've learned. So far, just for us, there is relearning about love from a courtly love tradition with Francesca. There's taking this writerly way to talk about love, courtly love, in actual way, but in Francesca's case, it's in a book, this writerly way to write about love and it is recasting it so that we start to rethink about it. It's taking politics, the Ghibellines and the Gelfs from Farinata, and recasting it. It's taking rhetoric and the games of rhetoric from Pierre de la Vagna, and what rhetoric does, and how you can get ahead with just the right words, and unlearning what you know. And here with Brunetto, 
It's poetry. And with Cavalcanti, we've already seen Guido, or at least his father, and we've referenced him. Inferno is so much about unlearning what you've learned, unlearning political discourse, unlearning courtly love discourse, unlearning the poetics that seem to be stymied by their gorgeous rhetoric that doesn't in the end add up to something, even though it's using the vernacular as Dante believes it should, that it comes off as stale. Let the green grass stay a long way from the goat. Brunetto Latini here is both the most rhetorically assured figure we have met so far in Inferno, and he's also the emptiest. I mean, really, honestly, when you read these speeches by Brunetto in, in comedy, you, well, you, I shouldn't say you, I, I keep saying to myself, just say what you mean. Just tell me what, don't, don't do this stuff. Don't dance around with crab apples and figs and, and dung heaps and cultivated plants. And come on, just tell me what you mean. Just say, ugh, the old Roman stock's all ruined by the country people that invaded Florence. He is incredibly adept at using language to make his point, and yet at the same time, his overuse of a poetic, highfalutin language, even though it includes coarse vernacular words, ends up feeling and ringing rather empty. And I think there's a way in which people often miss the emptiness of Brunetto Latini, the emptiness of this speech, because, of course, they focus on how beautiful it is, and they focus on the fact that he's saying, essentially, you, Dante, are a pure cultivated plant. And so, you know, you got, don't, don't worry that you grew up on a dung heap. You still are the pure cultivated bit. You still caught a little bit of that holy Roman seed inside of you. People want to see that, and they miss the fact that this speech actually comes off rather dead. That's because... Latini's interested in something that may not be exactly what our poet is interested in, but we will know that on the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. So subscribe, like this podcast. I would really appreciate a review. Drop down to the bottom of the Apple or the Google pages. You'll see how to write a review there. You can't write a review on Spotify, but you'll see how to write reviews there. I would really appreciate it. Connect with me. There's a Walking with Dante group on Facebook, or you can connect with me on Twitter, hashtag at Walking with Dante. I'll find you. Follow me. I'll follow you. We can talk more about Dante, and I will see you next time for the remainder of Brunetto's highfalutin, yet in the end, strangely unfulfilling speech on Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then. See you then.